Life is full of great questions. It's full of all kinds of questions, actually. There are those stupid questions, like, why is it that we park on driveways and drive on parkways? Why is it that we find ourselves um, spelling phonetic in a way that it doesn't look like it sounds? Why is it that um, on cross-country trips they put uh, water flotation devices under airplane seats instead of parachutes? There are mysteries to life. These are the crazy questions. There are also the very serious questions, like why do the good die young? Why do the righteous suffer? There are perennial questions, like why can't the Congress of the United States or the Chicago Cubs get their act together all at the same time? There are good questions, like is it really worth my time to have shown up here today and to be listening to this message? But alongside of all of these other kinds of wonderings, there is a very special class of inquiries that one might appropriately call great questions. By great questions, I don't mean the kind that typically get discussed at conferences of philosophers or scientists or posted out there on the internet or sent around in YouTube videos or spam. By great questions, I'm talking about ones that aren't really aimed at all at defining something out there so much as clarifying something in here. I'm speaking of questions that are so penetratingly personal. Questions not asked by us, but to us, aimed into the center of our beings. Questions that are so personal, we tend typically to fumble while trying to answer them. We fumble because we instinctively know that the question is a very important one. We fumble because we instinctively sense that the way we answer this question will reveal something deep about us and that will ultimately, by how we answer, either confirm or reshape the nature of our life. When I say great questions, I guess what I'm really speaking about are the kinds of questions that Jesus so relentlessly asked. Take, for example, the one we read about in Mark chapter 10 today. You may find it helpful to open in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. We're going to be reading from verses 32 and following. The Bible says in verse 32 that Jesus and his disciples were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. What a marvelous picture of life this is and of discipleship this is. All of us were on our way somewhere. We're on our way often up a steep incline as the journey from the Jordan Riverbed on up to Jerusalem was indeed a, a steep and difficult journey. But what a difference it makes to have Jesus leading the way. It's at the start of this journey that we associate ourselves with the season that Christians call Lent. Jesus knows that in order to give life to this world God so loves, He's going to need to lay down his life upon the cross to pay the price for human sin, to show the world the magnificence of the love of God. And so the Bible tells us Jesus took the twelve aside and he told them what was going to happen to him. 
We're going up to Jerusalem, Jesus said. And the Son of Man, this was the title that Jesus most frequently chose for Himself, taken directly out of the prophecy of the prophet Daniel about the coming Messiah. The Son of Man, said Jesus, will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. How ironic that this one who had come to be the Savior of all was rejected by the very religious establishment who should most likely have honored him. And they will condemn him to death, says Jesus, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. But three days later, he will rise. Jesus is charting for us in these words the way of life. He's saying, in effect, I know you all want to see redemption. I know that just as you wanted it in Israel, uh, oh, ancient one, so we in our day, we want to see redemption. We want to see the renewal of life. We want to see the restoration of, of things as they could be. But the path to that restoration is not what you think it is, says Jesus. The great good that you long for is going to require great sacrifice. And that's ironic, or maybe fitting, that the greatest good is often found only through paying a serious price. And this sacrifice is something for which you might not be ready, says Jesus. That's why I'm preparing you about describing the way. The Scriptures say that then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us Whatever we ask. It's a remarkable question, really, set at that particular moment. As Jesus has just described this heart-rending vision of what he's going to suffer, these, these two come to him so apparently selfishly, demanding that he do for them exactly what they ask. And yet, rather than rejecting them, rather than spurning their advance or ignoring them completely, it is then that Jesus asks the very first of the great questions that we're going to explore this Lenten season, the Bible says, what do you want, said Jesus? What do you want me to do for you, he asked. If you're a parent, how many of you are parents? If you're a kid, how many of you are kids? How many of you remember being kids? Good. Well, if you are in any one of these categories, this exchange has to sound quite familiar. I wish I had a dollar for every time one of my boys came to me and said, Dad, I want you to do something for me, but you have to say yes before I tell you what it is. (laughs) Have you been there? You know that conversation? There's something that is not just amusing but also achingly sad about that kind of inquiry, that kind of overture. What's the assumption that underlies that kind of petition? Why do we as kids, or why do James and John make approaches like this? Why do we sometimes manipulate and cajole and coerce the people who seem to have the power to grant what we want? Why do do we set up our parents or our spouses or our bosses or our friends or even God himself, dancing around the subject of what we really want, trying to position it so it can be delivered exactly the way we hope it will be. Why do we do this? 
You know the answer, don't you? Think deeply. You know the answer to that question. It is because there are some things that we want so very badly that we just do not know how we can possibly bear it if the answer is no. And we've heard no. We've heard no before. What do you want? What do you want, asked Jesus. But we're actually afraid to answer. At least afraid to answer with the deepest truth. Because far too often, we've heard the answer we don't want to hear. Dad, will you play with me? No, I'm sorry, son. I'm sorry, daughter, but I'm working. I've got work to do. Mom, can I tell you what happened? You won't believe what happened. Can I tell you what happened? Just a minute, honey. Just a minute. I'm on the phone. Just a minute. Or will you come out and play with me? Can you come over and play with me? No, I'm sorry. I'm already playing with Johnny. Can't play with you. Or will you go out with me? Will you go to the dance with me? No. I don't like you in that way. Can I be on the team? Can I play that part? No. I'm sorry, but you're not good enough. You're just not good enough. When we were very, very young, we asked a lot of questions like these. Most of us were even clearer than we are today. I'd I'd say much clearer than we are today on what we really wanted. We knew how to ask for it. I'm wet. I'm hungry. I'm scared. I'm lonely. Right? Please. Take me in your arms. I'm confused. I don't know the answer. I need someone to show me. Please help me learn. Help me learn. I, I have a treasure to share. I, I, I have made something good. I can make a difference. Please value me. I'm happy. I've discovered something wonderful. I'm delighting in this. Please, come enjoy this with me. At the start of life's journey, you and every single person that you know or will meet this week, you and all of us had a want list that was profoundly simple. And I would suggest to you also simply profound. It was simply these wants. I want to love and to be loved. I want to grow in grace and in wisdom. I want to give a gift that truly matters. And I want to sing a song of joy. And I don't want to do it alone. I want to do it with others. 
But we heard the answer no when we voiced those wants. We heard the answer no a bit too often. We got the answers from people who themselves had heard the answer no to these wants an awful lot in the course of their journey. And so we started to ask for different things, more attainable sets of wants. We started to substitute for these deep, God-given desires a more superficial and apparently reachable set of goals. To paraphrase Tiger McLuhan, our family conference speaker of this weekend, we started asking for the four P's instead of that which would give us peace. We asked for the four P's. I want prettiness or good looks. That will make me happy. I want performance. I want to be thought of as good. I want to achieve. That will bring me peace. I want popularity. Uh, That will make me feel good. I want possessions. That will secure me at my deep level of need. And these are the things, the four P's, so constantly peddled from every corner through every organ of the society, constantly clamoring about us, continually claiming to satisfy us, to be the answer to our longings. If we just get these peas, we will have peace. The world keeps telling us. There's nothing wrong, of course, with being good-looking or being a fine performer. I'm looking at it a lot of them. People who match that image, that description, popularity, possessions, they're not evils either. But as the story of another well-known tiger reminds us, what shall it profit a man to gain all of these? These peas so treasured by this world if he's lost his soul. What peace can he truly have? Or as the Bible paraphrases, the message Bible paraphrases the words of Jesus so beautifully, what good would it do to get everything you want and lose you? The real you. What good would it do to get everything you want? This is why when Jesus asked James and John, I think, What do you want? It is truly a great question. What do you most deeply want? Jesus is asking. Jesus was giving them an invitation to reveal to him and perhaps to themselves the real self, the deepest desires of their heart. Too seldom do invitations like this come along to us. And maybe it was because they were on the outskirts of Jericho that James and John answered the way they did. Jericho, you see, was the commercial hub of that part of the world. It was the Chicago of Judea. It was a prosperous place. People were moving very quickly. They had lots of stuff. The four Ps were in abundance in Jericho. And so in answer to Christ's question, James and John say here these things. They say, this is what we want, Jesus. Let one of us sit on your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. In other words, Jesus, give us great seats when you come into power. 
when you take over Israel, when you throw out the Romans, when you pull it all together, give us the skybox, Jesus. Give us the best seats. We're going to look pretty good sitting next to you. We've never looked all that good, but in those seats, we're going to start looking pretty, pretty good. We'll be regarded as terrific performers to have gained such a position. There have been moments over these past three years, Jesus, when frankly, going through these dusty towns and talking to these dirty people and these broken people, it's been a little bit of a downer, Jesus. Our friends and our relatives have looked at us as if we're not much of a success, Jesus. But when we get the seats, Jesus, they'll know we were performers. We bet wisely. And Jesus, we'll be popular then. We'll be truly popular then. And we'll have all the possessions that go go with the glorious kingdom we know you're going to establish. Let us sit at your right hand and at your left hand when you come into glory. And I see the face of Jesus. I imagine the face of Jesus who had just issued to them this beautiful invitation. To recover their deepest desires. And I see his face falling. And I see the heartbreak in his eyes. And he says, you, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you are asking. You don't want what you're asking for, truly. You don't want the, to bear the weight that I'm going to bear for this world of four Ps. You'll taste of its bitter cup soon enough. You'll be washed in its violence and bloodshed soon enough. You don't need all of these substitute assurances now. You don't need more of that world for which you keep sadly clamoring. What you most deeply want is what I came to give you. Is what Jesus is feeling, I'm certain. And even if you have forgotten it, even if you've buried it down deep, even if you've lost all hope of ever recovering it. I know what you want. You want to know. You want to be sure. That whether you happen to be good looking or popular, or not, in the gaze of anyone else, in the eyes of the person whose opinion counts most in this universe, you are beloved. You want to know that. And you can count on it. You are. That's why I traveled such a distance. To come and find you, says Jesus. And you... You want to possess the greatest riches possible. That's what you want. And you will. I promise you that. If you will simply seek to grow in my grace and my wisdom, I'll give you riches beyond compare. And you want to feel that you bring a gift that really matters, that's going to last, that's going to make a difference. And I want to tell you what, you do, you will, so long as you put yourself and whatever you have in the service of my kingdom. 
But let me just stop you right there and tell you something even more important, I think Jesus would say. Let me be clear about this because it's every bit as important. Whether you ever publish a book, whether you ever build a big church or business, whether you ever win a gold medal, whether you ever perform in any other way that other people recognize, let me be clear to you about this. You are the gift that matters. You are. You are. You think I go to a cross to die for junk? You are valuable this much, says Jesus. And I know something else about you, he says. I know you don't want to sit at the table of life in some high seat or some low seat by yourself. I know that about you. You want other people close by who will shed a tear with you when you're in pain, who will sing a song of joy and gladness with you when there's something to celebrate. Come, what may? And you can have that. You can have that assurance, says Jesus. That's why I formed this family and called you to become a part of it. In his marvelous book, Holy Curiosity, Wynne Collier writes this. Uncovering our deepest desires is onerous work. Smothered, forgotten, Or shamed into hiding, our true desires often lie fallow, undeveloped, untended. They're buried under years of disappointment, disconnection, fear, and outright manipulation. Our culture, addicted to shallow or nihilistic passions, detached from God, provides little help. We need a wise, fierce friend to probe past the facade and quarry deep into our hidden places. We need a strong hand to reach out and grab hold of our entombed, comatose heart and wake it up and lead it back to God. In short, in short, says Collier, we need Jesus. That's what we want. We need Jesus. Jesus. Here's the good news. Jesus, he already knows what we want. But he asks us the great question anyway. Why does he do that? Could it be because it's only when we sit with the question that we begin to rediscover, to find for Ourselves, that there are wants even deeper than the superficial ones that bubble like geysers on the surface of our lives that preoccupy us with their steam when all along they connect down to a wellspring so much larger and more potent and significant. He asks us this great question so that we'll begin to let go of those false solutions, those substitute assurances for those deepest desires to which God, my beloved, has already said, yes, you can have this. I'll show you the way to this. Yes. 
But I think that Jesus has something else in mind also. I think He wants us to help each other remember what we want. When was the last time that you asked that great question of someone else? I don't mean what do you want for dinner? What do you want for Christmas? What do you want to do this afternoon? I mean, what do you want so deeply that you'd be brokenhearted if the answer was no? What do you want? What do you want? In your family and in your circle of friends and in your neighborhood and in your school and in the place where you work and everywhere you go in the car that will be driving by you on the way home today sit people who may need help getting in touch with this desperate desire long buried. So ask somebody, when do you feel most loved? So much so that when someone loves you that way, you wish it would never stop. What do you want people to do to show you love? And then tell that person what you cherish about her or him. Ask someone in what area of your life Do you want to grow more gracious, more wise? And then tell that person where you've seen some measure of grace and truth blooming in them already. Ask someone, what's one gift you have? that maybe others don't take seriously enough, that you wish that they would bring to the party of life more, use more, and then describe for them some way in which you've seen their life be a gift to you or to others. Ask somebody today, what's bringing you joy? What was the last thing that really brought you joy? And then celebrate that with them. Help them find the deep desire. You know, even sadness, even sentimentality can be a clue. It can be one of those geysers that point us to the deeper want or calling. Frederick Beekner, one of my favorite authors, says that whenever you find tears in your eyes, it is well to pay the closest attention They are not only telling you something about the secret of who you are, says Beekner, but more often than not, God is speaking to you through those tears of the mystery of where you have come from, the the experiences that led up to this moment, and is summoning you to where, if your soul should be saved, you should go next. So even if it's painful, Ask yourself and the people you care about, what do you wish your family was like? What do you wish your marriage could become? What do you want your kids to be? 
What of yourself, your life, your vision, your values, do you just pray will somehow be a legacy in their lives? What do you want your friends to be saying when they stand one day around your graveside? What do you want to do this week to take one step closer in the direction of that Jerusalem? As Wynne Collier points out, the tragedy... The tragedy of James and John's answer to the question of Jesus is not that they made a selfishly brash request. That could have been a beginning. The sad part is that their wishes were so small, had become so trivial. And in the passage that follows, a blind man boldly asks Jesus for nothing less than the gift of sight. What do you want, says Jesus? And he says, I want to see. And Jesus says, yes, I give you your sight. Yet here are James and John jockeying for seating arrangements when Jesus is offering them vision when he's offering them God in the flesh, when he's presenting to them the staggering mercy and scandalous grace of a kingdom come, let's not miss the moment, brothers and sisters, when Jesus asks the great question, what, says Jesus, do you want in life? What do you really want? What do you want me to do for you? What do you want so badly that you need me to help you get there? What do you hunger for? What do you thirst for? What do you want to see change? What do you want to see happen? Sit with that question. Sit with that question today and in this week ahead. Let it rattle around inside of you. Filter down deep within you. Until there rises up from the depths a heartfelt answer. A heartfelt longing. And you may then find, you will probably find, that the answer of God is yes, yes, come follow me and let me take you there. May God bless to us this reflection upon his holy word and to him be all the glory. Amen.